November 1981, I was a senior at Oregon State University, and in this particular day, I was strolling across campus, and I heard a lot of commotion in this area we call the quad, and I was like, what the heck is going on out there? And I, and I looked out there, and I saw this, this young preacher kind of preppy dressing, and he's kind of screaming at everybody that was walking by, and I got kind of annoyed, and then I got angry, and I thought to myself, somebody needs to knock that cat out. Kind of a dumb thought, right? But that was the thought that went to my eyes. Somebody needs to take care of that boy. So I decided to volunteer. <laughs> Fortunately for him and me, I, have, I was late for my next class, so I went off to class with every intent of coming back and continuing my goal of beating that kid down for being such a loud nu nuisance. Thankfully, when I got out there, he was gone, and I did what comes naturally. I went to the food court. I get to the food court, so me and some of my buddies, we, we grab our food, and we're about to sit down, and on the table, it's littered with all these flyers, and it said, are you satisfied? And then on the back side of the flyer was an invitation to a series of Christian meetings they were going to have on campus, and I was, you know, I was kind of wadding it up, trying to throw it, before I could throw it away, it seemed like this guy got beamed down from the Star Trek, right in front of me, before God in heaven, is this young preacher standing in front of me with his sidekick. And so they try to, you know, they try to relate to us, and I'm shutting it down. I'm like, not interested, dude, move on. And uh, so he's talking. He realized that he was getting no traction and decided to just invite us up to this meeting they're going to be having. And, and they got out of our face, and I was really happy to see him go away. So that afternoon, I get home, and my roommate, Rudy, uh, is at our apartment. And, and he said, hey, Roz, did you hear about that, 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 hear that guy screaming on campus? You going to go check that meeting out? I said, man, I don't check no meeting out. Please. See, Rudy and I had been roommates for four years. He was my roommate since we were freshmen in, in college. And he was, the, he was a really spiritual guy. He was always trying to get us to go to church, always trying to get us to do stuff. And, and, I, and I was always just a pain in his backside on that, on that as far as spirituality was concerned. But see, I was raised in the church, just so you know. My parents were missionaries to Papua New Guinea for 14 years. In 1968, we immigrated to, Uni to the United States and settled in Long Beach, California, Southern California, on what's called the West Side. And in that place, my father pastored a small church, a small Samoan congregational church on the west side for 30 years before he passed away in 2000. I read the Bible. In fact, I had to memorize the books in the Bible before I got to the sixth grade. It was a requirement or else I was going to get tapped by my pops. And so I knew the Bible and the, you know, I'm not speaking in tongues. I'm just telling you the books of the Bible in Samoan. But I had to have that down. Had to have it down. And then we had this thing called, any, anybody have family devotions? We had family devotions. Anybody have family devotions? Y'all need to have some family devotions in here, man. What's going on? So my dad would gather the family together, usually about three or four times a week, and we'd get together for these family devotions, which included prayer and, and reading the scriptures and stuff. But it really got on my nerves because it really cut into my Gilligan Island time. Favorite show, <laughs> Professor Marianne Skipper, you know, the millionaire and his wife. We were going to have a little fellowship, and every time... Just seemed like when I'm getting settled down, Pops calls, okay, we're going to have a prayer. And then we'd have our devotions. And what usually happened is that he would have one of the kids do the Bible reading or he'd have one of us do the prayer. And there was a prescribed way to pray. And if you didn't get it right, guess what? You were reminded. You know how you were reminded? Oh, yeah, okay. Really spiritual experience for me. And so, you know, I mean... When I got to OSU, I really wasn't into church. I was, wasn't interested in church. And when my dad would call me and say, hey, son, you been to church? I'd say, yeah. I didn't tell him it was like three months ago. But, uh, you know, I just wasn't into that, into that church stuff. 
but I considered myself to be a very spiritual person. I considered myself to be a Christian, although you wouldn't have known that if you looked at my actions or my lifestyle. In fact, it was interesting. I was being interviewed by a, a, a paper, and they asked me about my rituals before the game, and I told them I have this Samoan hymn that I sing, I sing this song, right? And I'd be in the corner, and guys are like, what's going on with Raj? No, don't worry about it, man. He's doing his thing. So I do my little ritual. I sing this, this Samoan hymn. Then I pray this really fervent prayer. Lord, let me kill this guy today in Jesus' name. And so, and it was interesting. The article comes out with the headlines, prayer, power, Samoan, please. So when Rudy asked me to go along with him to this meeting, this Christian meeting on campus, I tried to kind of wiggle my way out of it. And he was persistent and finally guilted me into going to that meeting that night. And and then so I felt bad and I guilted two other teammates into going. So four of us decided together to go to this meeting at the Memorial Union at OSU that night. Little did I know the significance that evening would become in my life. Defining moments in our personal lives are usually identified in retrospect, aren't they? It takes time to determine the impact of our response to an event or perhaps a decision that we make. It just takes time for us to be able to look back and reflect on the impact that particular decision or that action may have had in our lives. You know, man, if I could have done something differently, I would have done this. You know, as you think back on your life, there's some things that if you would have done something differently, you may not be sitting here. I may not be sitting here. So as I look back over 30 years ago to that November 18, 1981, I can say that what took place that evening upstairs in the OSU Memorial Union was a defining moment. It changed the trajectory, the direction, the path for my life. And I think back to that event, one word stands out in my mind, a concept, a thought, a truth, a loving command, one word that confronted me, that shook me to the core, that forced me to take inventory of who I was and where I was in my life. A word that was used by Jesus in his first sermon, repent. To me, it's one of the most loving commands in Scripture. And we'll dig into that here in a few moments. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that it is your word that changes life as your spirit attends to your word. And it's open hearts, Lord, that, that, that you need in order to plant that word in, in a safe place, in a good soil. And so, God, I pray for good soil tonight or this afternoon. And I ask that you would have your way with our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, help. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his wrist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees, Coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of, of, of snakes, he, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Listen to what Jesus said. And if you go into chapter 4, that's where Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he has these temptations. And he comes out in his first sermon. Listen to his words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is near. 
I like the way Matthew Henry describes that word repent. The word here used implies a total alteration in the mind, a change in the, in the judgment, disposition, and affections. Another and a better bias of the soul. Consider your ways. Change your minds. You have thought amiss, think again, and think aright. Charles Finney said about repent, a phenomenon of the will and consists in turning, of, turning or change of the ultimate intentions from selfishness to benevolence. Our ultimate intentions is typically about us. Finney is saying, it, when you repent, you're changing your ultimate intention from being selfish to being benevolent. The term expresses the act of turning, the changing of the heart, or of the ruling preference of the soul. This morning, I want us to consider three reasons repent is one of the most loving commands in Scripture. First of all, it reveals the truth about sin and calls us to turn from sin. James chapter 1, if you read this, I love, I love the way that James kind of lays it out because he kind of fillets, he kind of gives us a, 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 an outline of what sin looks like. The anatomy of sin and how it plays out. And remember when you, are be, when you are being tempted, verse 13, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So temptation comes, it entices us, drags us away, follow through with the action, death is the result. Very Pretty straightforward. Romans 6 says this, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. When I walked into the, into the meeting, that students' Christian meeting in the MU that November evening, I had no expectations because I'd never been in a meeting quite like that. I'd attended a few Bible studies, but never in a, in a meeting quite like this. Perhaps the closest was a, a chapel program that we had for the football team. But I was mainly there because Rudy had guilted me into coming. I, now, I wasn't an angel. I wasn't an angel. I was far from perfect. Have you ever heard of the Never Do This Again Club? That would be the club populated by people that do a lot of dumb stuff and then hope God would rescue them and promising him, Lord, if you just rescue me, I'll never do that again. Ever been part of that club? Well, I was the founder and president at Oregon State University. I would, I would do dumb stuff and then... Oh, Lord, help. Promise I'll never do that again. That being said, I didn't know I had any issues with God. I thought me and God were okay. I thought we were good. Sure, I had been a drunkard, a womanizer, a liar, a thief, a brawler, and a rebel. I admit that I'd done a few other not-so-nice things. But I also had a few things going for me. I was the son of a pastor. I was a Boy Scout. Yes, on the west side, we had Boy Scouts. I was the captain of the football team. I went, I went to a few uh, campus Bible studies. In fact, I used to lead, try to lead some of the prayer meetings after football practice. Guys, Christian guys would get around and I'd jump in and, you know, they'd have, pick guys to say prayer. And I, I was always waiting for them to pick me to say prayer because I loved to pray. Because remember, I'd been trained to pray, so I'd pray. But I think they stopped picking me because I had long prayers. I didn't think I had a, had a problem, though. I saved, in fact, here, here you go. I didn't save not once, but twice I saved a life. I saved two kids from being beat down by a group of other kids. When I was in the, uh, I don't know if Levi remembers this, but when I was in the third grade at John Muir Elementary School, kind of a rough, rough area, so I'm just minding my own business, kind of strolling around campus, and I look over to the, to, 
near the middle of the school, the play area, and there's like six guys just kind of going at this one little guy. You know, these African-American kids, they're just sitting around there just pounding on these, this kid. And I'm looking at and I look close and I say, man, what's up? And he got this little chubby guy in the middle. He's just all balled up, and they're just like, you know, they're doing the, the so I don't know what came over me, but I went, ah! And I just ran towards that crowd, and I threw myself into the crowd. And I think I just scared them off more than, I, than anything else. They're like, Psh. So they, they're gone, and this kid is still laying there. He's kind of whimpering. I pick him up. He goes, you're my best friend. Of course I'm my best friend. I just saved your life. Come on. So we get up, and we start walking through the park. You know, we're strolling. And he's kind of wiping. His he goes, what's your name? I said, Roger. What's your third graders? I don't, know, I don't know what grade he was in. I was in third. I said, what's your name? He goes, Levi. And, and he said, when I have my first son, his name's going to be Roger. I said, when I have my first son, his name's going to be Levi. That's how he got his name. And uh, so hey, I had some things going for me, right? I had some things going for me. I had to rescue that kid. My problem is that I didn't think I had a problem. I was okay with my dysfunctional and toxic lifestyle. Primarily because I didn't know if or how it could be any different. Right? Layered on top of that is the fact that I like being the king of my kingdom, although it's a kingdom of one and bankrupt. <laughs> Sin is missing the mark. Sin is systemic. It's cancerous. Sin separates us from God. Listen to what Psalms 38 says about sin and its impact, its effects on us. Here's David. Oh, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Your arrows have struck deep and your blows are crushing me. Because of your anger, my whole body is sick. My health is broken because of my sins. My guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and stink because of my foolish sins. I am bent over and racked with pain. All day long I walk around filled with grief. A raging fever burns within me, and my health is broken. I'm exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. Skip down to verse 17. I am on the verge of collapse, facing constant pain, but I confess my sins. I'm deeply sorry for what I've done. I have many aggressive enemies that hate me. They hate me without reason. They repay me evil for good and oppose me for pursuing good. Do not abandon me, O Lord. Do not stand at a distance. My God, come quickly to help me, O Lord, my Savior. John 10.10 10 says this about sin. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Another version says, might have it to the fullest. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isaiah 51, I remember from those early days when I first gave my life to the Lord, says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not so short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities, your twisting of the truth, your perverting of justice has caused a separation between you and your God. So it's our sins, our acts of commission and omission. It's what we do that have separated us from him, and not only what we do, but who we are. Has caused this separation. Now, layer onto that, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, verse 4. Here's what it says Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So, not only am I separated because of my stupidity and my pride and arrogance, but I'm also separated because I'm deceived and I don't see God for who he is. I've been deceived. That November evening, 30 plus years ago, as I sat there 
listening to the young preacher, I began to take inventory of my life. His words began to pierce through my pride and arrogance, my religious facade, my hidden sins. I was confronted with the thought that one of us was lying. I mean, as this young guy spoke, I thought to myself, man, dude, either you're lying or I'm living a lie. And if you're, not, if you're telling the truth, then I'm going to split hell wide open. I happened to, when I was, as I was preparing this, this message, I was just reminded of that young preacher. And I called him up. Thank God I still had his number. I haven't talked to Greg in, gosh, maybe a dozen years. And I picked up the phone and I just talked. He picked up his rods. And so we just kind of touched base. And, and I just let him, hey, bro, I just want to let you know I appreciate the way you invested in my life. He was from Mississippi State. And they were out here ministering in Eugene, and they were on their way up to Washington. They stopped over at Oregon State for a series of, of, of lectures and meetings. And I just wanted to thank him. I said, bro, I just want to thank you for uh, helping me and for changing my life. And just, I just want to encourage him. Had a really good conversation. But I was hiding behind that religious facade. I thought I was okay. But I really didn't know God. I really wasn't a Christian. Repentance, repent, reveals what sin looks like, commands us lovingly to turn from it. Second thought I have is that repent is one of the most loving commands in Scripture because it reveals the truth about God and calls us to turn to him. Listen to, I want you to hear the heart behind this. And God, if you read the Scriptures, Israel was always messing up. I mean, it's like, God, again? Really? Right? Read, just read the Bible for a while. You just say, these guys are just like knuckleheads. And he'd always just call them back. God constantly just going after them, wooing them back to himself. Here's one of those instances in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal them. Can you hear the heart behind those verses, those words? Put your name in there. If Roger, who's called by my name, will humble himself and pray and seek my face and turn from his wicked ways, then I will, heal Ro I will hear Roger from heaven and I will forgive his sin and I'll heal him. That's great news. That's a great promise for us. I also love the way that Luke depicts God in the prodigal son story. You've heard that story before, right? Luke 15 talks about this young man goes to his pops and said, hey, I want my inheritance and I want it all now. That doesn't sound familiar to you, right, parents? I want it. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. I can handle my business. So his father gives him all his inheritance. He goes and he blows it on loose living, just kind of messes up. And then next thing you know, he finds himself in a, in a, in a, in a eating the slop of pigs, hanging out with pigs. Started out with all this money. Now he's in the, he's in the pit. And we pick up the story in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's a whole different picture. I don't know if you, if that, if you capture that. That's, that's the picture of God the Father waiting, lovingly, longing for us to come back to the safe place called home. I mean, if, I, if that was me, I'm like, I'm standing there with a bat. You know what I'm saying? 
Let me see that kid again. I'll work it out. So I don't know what your, what your picture of God is, but let the scriptures craft for you the proper perspective of God the Father. A loving father who's waiting for his son, hoping, praying, and he sees him coming over the horizon. He sees a shadow, and it's like, I, I know my kids in the crowd. I, I, I just know the, way I know the way they walk. I know the little, whatever, their gait. And he sees his son, and he sees him come over the, over the horizon. He doesn't just wait there. He doesn't just, oh, yeah, hope he comes to his right mind before he gets here. I got something for him when he gets up here. No, the Bible says that he gets off the porch and he just runs out there and smothers him with love. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the image of the God that we serve. That's the image of the living God that you ought to have. That's the God that we turn to. Romans 10 says this, and Paul is trying to, he's trying to write wrong thinking about God. And he goes to the, to the, to the Israelites and he says, hey, dear brothers and sisters, longing the longing of my heart and pr my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal. For they, under they don't understand God's way of making people right. Listen here, folks. I want to read this again. Verse 3. They don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. The Jews said, hey, if we just do everything right, we're going to be good with God. Their methodology of getting right with God was just doing a bunch of right acts, coming up with some new ones so they can somehow look better to God. He said, hey, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself, refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right. What's your way, what's way, what's your way of getting right? What's your method of getting right with God? I don't know what it is. Well, what is it? You probably made something up. Here's the scriptural way. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose. What the law does, it, it, the, the law was given to us to reveal to us our need for God. The law was given to us to reveal that we are finite, fallible, and fallen. We are jacked up. We're messed up. Toe up from the, throat, from the flow up. That's what we are. We're no good. That's what, the, that's what the law reveals to us. And then it gives us an answer. gives us a, a solution. If you confess, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They're the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone, everybody say everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be rescued, will be saved. Everyone. When the young preacher gave the call to repent, I remember struggling at first because I didn't want to surrender to the truth that I was separate from God. How could that be? I was raised in the church. I sang in the choir. I gave in the offering. Blah, 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 blah. I remember looking over at Rudy and my other teammates waiting for them to raise their hands because I knew them, and they, they had some issues, man. Rudy sitting right here. I remember John and Derek, and I'm thinking to myself, 
And as the preacher was, the young preacher, man, my heart was just like boom, boom. And I said, Rudy, get your hand up, dude. You met, and John, oh my goodness, you, you know, John was, anyway. I, I knew all about them, so I'm trying to call them out the whole time when the light is on me. So I responded. I couldn't wait for them anymore. Couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. So my hand shot up. And I thought to myself, oh, here we go. I needed God. Those guys weren't moving. And I said, that's enough. I'm going to repent. I'm going to respond. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says this. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. Repent tells us to turn from sin, tells us to turn to God, and then finally, it tells us to live like we believe. Live like we believe. Here's what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, verse 8. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. The book of Acts gives an account of the church the New Testament church bursting onto the scene. If you read that, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll be, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then it gives the activities that happened in the church. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day, the birthing of the church. And then here's what they did. Here's the lifestyle that, that began to take place. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone is, was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Just the life of God coming out of these folks and, and, and affecting their community, affecting their families. I remember when I went home that holiday season after giving my life to Jesus, I got home and, and my cousin Ben, who was my drinking partner, comes up to the house. He goes, hey, Raj, what's up? So what, what are you talking about? What's this, what's this God thing that's going on that you're telling everybody? So I just shared my story with him. I just told him what happened. And next thing you know, I'm leading my first convert to Jesus. Ben gives his life to the Lord. And I said, and then I, I remember we were just talking. I think we're supposed to read the Bible now. Okay. So that night we got together, Ben and I were reading the Bible. And then Phil shows up, my brother-in-law. He goes, hey, what's up? Uh, we're just reading the Bible. Hey, what's this thing about God? What's going on? So I shared my, Phil had a, had a Catholic background. I, I didn't go to evangelism class. I didn't know what they, all I know, I was telling, I was sharing them my story, my experience, what had happened to me. So I'm talking to Phil about this. You know, he's praying and giving his, so there's three of us now. And then my sister gets wind of it, Terry. She's, she's, she likes to be in charge. Anyway, so, so she starts making fun of us. Like, oh yeah, you bunch of religious nuts, right? And then, but, but she, was, she was willing to cook for us. So she would cook these things called panqueque. It's like a fritter. It's like a, it's like a big ball of heaven. I'm just telling you. <laughs> got grease jumping off. Got some sugar up in there. I mean, it's just really, and she was really, she was the best panqueque cook in the house. So she's cooking. 
we do our Bible studies. We started like 11 o'clock. Terry's in the kitchen cooking, pancake. me, Phil, and Ben are doing it. Another cousin shows up. Next thing you know, the, the circle starts growing. People start, I didn't know how to lead anybody to the Lord. All I know is they start praying like, oh, God, give me Jesus. Okay, next guy. And then my, another cousin would show up and somebody else from the church. And we had, I don't know, 20, 30 people showing up. And I remember about a week and a half in, Terry, the atheist, the, anyway. So the cook, that's what she was good for. She was good for cooking. So we're in, a, we're in the prayer circle, and we're praying, and all of a sudden I hear, oh, God. I hear this, you know, I look over, and Terry's got snot coming out of here. She's crying. <laughs> got pankeke all over her hands. And get in the kitchen and cook. Don't be messing up our prayer line. Not this year. She gave her, and so that, that week, that, that two weeks that I was home, most of my siblings came to the Lord. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All I know is that somebody, Jesus had changed my heart. He changed my life. And I was telling somebody else, and they told somebody else, and they told somebody else. And it was our lives being changed from the inside. We began to live like we believe. We began to live like we believe. And that's, I mean, that's all, that's all this thing is about following Jesus, about living like we believe. We're free. We're forgiven. The power of sin is no longer an issue in our lives if we live like we believe. We're being transformed by the grace of God and the power of his word. We need to live like we believe. I called up a good friend of mine, Joe, because I, I wanted to ask permission to share the story about living like you believe. Uh, I, I just, you guys know this. I've said this a few times, perhaps. You didn't hear me. I am not a good counselor. So if you want some counseling in your life, stay away from me because I'll mess you up. Just putting it out there. So if you call the church office and you ask for a counselor, my name will not come to the top. They'll keep you. Anyway, so Joe, I, uh, Joe was, a, was a good friend of mine. When we first went to the University of Hawaii to be college pastors, there, Joe was one of the top athletes, got drafted by the Cowboys, and just a great guy, a big guy, uh, uh, competed in the World Strongman competition. And anyway, he had kind of drifted away from God. And so this one evening, I'm staying at home. Kimberly was here on the mainland. This was in Hawaii. This took place. And I'm sitting, I'm staying at home, and I get the knock on the door about 11, 1130. And here comes big old Joe, all 350 pounds of him. So he comes to the door, and uh, he sits down, and we're starting to talk and chat. And he goes, Raj, I've messed up, man. I really messed up. He just begins to pour his life out to me about out for, for about an hour. And I'm just, while he's talking, I remember thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, what am I going to say? Because, you know, I, he's got some issues, he should fix them, right? <laughs> and so he's, and he's talking, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's easy, that's easy. So he, the more he talks, the more I'm thinking to myself, this is not good. And I began praying, oh, God, please, give me the words, give me the words. He said, Raj, I've been unfaithful, I've been on drugs, you know, all this other stuff. And I said, and then I remember, I remember hearing myself lean over to him, and I said like this, I said, Joe, you got 30 minutes. You're going to go home. You're going to tell your wife every single thing that's happened. And then she's going to call me in 25 minutes. If I don't get a phone call in 25 minutes, I'm going to call her. And then I'm going to tell her everything. All right, big fella? That's what we're going to do. I'm not a counselor. <laughs> Thank God for his response. Okay. So he, he goes, his big self goes out the door, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my Lord, what have I done? Right? I mean, I don't know what was going on. I get a, I get a call 20 minutes later, and it's, wife, it's his wife. 
and she's bawling. She's crying. They got a little girl. She's crying. She goes, I knew it. I knew, I knew, Raj, I knew something was going on. I knew something was happening. And so, so we just talked. He goes, and she just said, the upshot of our conversation, she goes, I think we're going to be okay. Joe's been in the full-time ministry now for over 20 years. He's traveled all over the world. And we were talking today, or well, not today, but a few days ago, because I wanted permission to share the story. I said, Joe, how's it going? He goes, bro, I am so glad I didn't mess things up. What I didn't realize is that night, awkward pause. I said, this, this, this happened in the first service. This, I don't know how Stan does this. This tear thing starts happening. It just messes people up. So, so Joe, Joe just, what I didn't realize is Joe had a 357 Magnum loaded in his car. And that night he was going to end it. You know, we were talking this week and he said, Raj, I'm so glad I didn't end it. I'm so glad. And God has healed his family. He goes, Raj, God uses our story to encourage other families. And Anna's, you know, she's good and she's, she's ministering. To, he's building a church on Oahu. It's growing. It's thriving. He travels all over the world as a speaker. And, and, and he's living his life like he believes it. He's changing the course of so many other people's lives. We're free from the power of sin. We've been transformed by the grace of God. Repenting is not only from an act, but it's a lifestyle. Repenting is a lifestyle. So the next time you hear the word repent, I hope you'll embrace it as a loving command to turn from your sin, to turn from our sins. Because sin just rips us off. I love what Donnie Moore says, that Jesus didn't come to take away our fun. He came to take away our pain. Sin will destroy you. It just, it, that's just, that's the nature. It's to destroy. Turn to God because he loves us completely and unconditionally. And he will heal you and make you whole. He will. And then finally, I hope you'll embrace repent as a loving command. Because it encourages and inspires us to live like we believe. And it's not because you want to, you know, you're going to will yourself into this, but it's you and I surrendering to the grace of God. It's you and I surrendering to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. It's you and I surrendering to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and giving him our lives fully and then fully engaging in the life that he's given us to live. That's what it's all about. So the next time you hear the word repent, I hope you remember those things.